scripture reading this evening before John's lesson will come from James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. James 1, 26 through 27. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Sometimes we need to spend time just thinking about the basics. What does God say that it means to be faithful to him? And a lot of times people get grandiose ideas. I need to go and I need to convert the entire world, which would be a wonderful thing if you could do that. Or grandiose ideas. I need to go into a foreign mission field and live and work there if I really wanna be faithful to God. It'd be wonderful if you could do that. But you don't have to do those things particularly as much as we want people to be saved and as much as we want foreign missions to go forward. In order to be faithful to God, you just need to read your Bible and then do what it says. And when you look at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, if you didn't open your Bibles just a moment ago, go ahead and do that. In James 1, 26 and 27, James is a very practical epistle, very down to earth, very where the rubber meets the road. And James says this. He says in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, my brethren, if anyone thinks he is religious, in other words, if you think that you're serving God, but you do not bridle your tongue, but rather deceive your own heart. And that's interesting. He's saying that if I refuse as a Christian to control my tongue, if I'm not careful about the words that I speak, then I'm deceiving my own heart. I might be the biggest gossip or the biggest slanderer, or I might use all kinds of words that are ungodly words in my speech. And if I act like I'm a Christian, but I will not bridle my tongue, and I'm not even making an attempt to do it. I'm not even trying. If I do that, listen to what he says. This person's religion is worthless. What does it mean to be faithful to God? What does it mean to serve God? It means, number one, that I bridle my tongue, that I bring my tongue under the control of God and his word. And that's a lifelong challenge, as we know. And then he goes on and says, religion that is pure and undefiled. Think about those words, pure religion. That's what I want. I want to be a part of serving God out of purity. And I want to serve God in an undefiled way. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you're taking notes, you might just note these three avenues, these three areas that God emphasizes. He emphasizes our speech, bridling our tongues. He emphasizes our compassion or our service to others, caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And he emphasizes holiness, keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Three areas that every Christian ought to give attention to. The way I talk, the way I serve, the way I live. Is my life holy and pleasing in God's sight? Incidentally, when you look at visit orphans and widows, you know what that word visit means? It doesn't mean that we just stop by for a cup of coffee or a slice of pie. 
although those are good things, that's not visiting the orphans and widows. Visit means that you attend to the needs of someone. So to visit someone means that I see that there's a need, I see that their lives are lacking in some significant area, and I strive to meet those needs. And God says, John, if you'll bridle your tongue, if you'll visit and attend to the needs of those who have legitimate needs, like orphans and widows, and if you'll live a holy life, undefiled, unspotted from the world, if you'll live that kind of life, that's pure and undefiled religion, John. That's what I desire of you. Sometimes the basics are the hardest things. Because when was the last time you attended to the needs of an orphan or a widow? Or when was the last time that you really thought about bridling your tongue to the glory of God? Or when was the last time that you thought about your life and the holiness or lack thereof that's evident in your life? Sometimes the most fundamental things are the most challenging. I just want us to use these two verses tonight for our study, and I want us to think from three different perspectives about these verses and what we can learn. What does God desire and what does he want us to see in these three verses? I want us to notice first of all tonight this. These verses, James 1, 26 and 27, are a picture of Jesus. Bridling your tongue, holy living, caring for orphans and widows, nobody ever did those things like Jesus did. Regarding speech, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23, that Jesus, he reviled not in return. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he was slandered, he held his peace and he committed himself to God who judges righteously. And Peter's thinking there in 1 Peter 2 about the cross. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, the way he spoke? People were accusing Jesus of not being the son of God and they were, they were challenging him, come down from the cross if you really are the son of God. And Jesus held his peace. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You talk about somebody who bridled his tongue, Jesus is the epitome of that. No one ever spoke like this man. John 7, 46, Jesus could control his tongue. And the fruit of the spirit, incidentally, is self-control, Galatians 5, 23. That includes our speech as well. Jesus epitomizes that. No one spoke as kindly, as compassionately, as graciously, and as truthfully as Jesus. If you abide in my words, he said, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth because his words are true and the truth will make you free. John 8, 31 and 32. No one ever spoke as purely and in as undefiled a way as Jesus did. Pure and undefiled religion. But not only that, when it comes to holiness, no one was ever as holy as Jesus. And I kind of wonder as James writes this inspired epistle in James 1, I kind of wonder if he's got Jesus on his mind as he's pinning these words. Someone who is keeping himself unspotted from the world, undefiled, unstained, some translations say, from the world. Regarding holiness, no one was ever as holy as Jesus. Utterly and completely without sin, Hebrews 4 verse 15. The scripture says in 1 Peter 1 verse 19 that Jesus was a lamb without spot or blemish. He kept himself undefiled from the world and thank God that he did because he could not have been our sacrifice any other way. In Acts 4 verse 30, when the apostles and the church prayed together, they called Jesus, speaking to the Father, they said, your holy servant Jesus. 
That's how they referred to him. He is God's holy servant. He's pure in every way. And as you look at James 1, 26 and 27, you've got to see something of Jesus in these verses. Regarding widows and orphans, all of a sudden I skipped way forward. There we go. Regarding widows and orphans, nobody ever paid attention to widows. Nobody ever paid attention to, Jesus, to children quite like Jesus did. Psalm 68 verse 5 says this about God. A defender of the fatherless and a helper of widows. That's our God in his holy habitation. And when you think about Jesus healing the widow's son or bringing him back to life, for example, or you think about Jesus watching the widow with her two mites in the temple, putting those two mites into the treasury, and he looks at his disciples and says, this widow has put in more than everybody else. He noticed, he paid attention, and he showed compassion to and kindness to widows. And when it came to young children, people brought their children to Jesus because he was approachable. And Jesus got angry one time when his disciples were trying to keep the, uh, keep the children away. He said, let the little children come to me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was concerned about people and he especially paid attention to people like widows and orphans because this is pure and undefiled religion. You know, all we really ought to want out of life is to be like Jesus. That's all we really ought to desire to be like him and to have his heart and to have his mind. He's someone who bridled his tongue. He's someone who lived a pure life. He's someone who cared for those who could not care for themselves. Second this evening, as you think about James 1, 26 and 27, there is a truth for us to apply. If you haven't already gotten this in your mind, it's time now to think about a truth to apply. You and I need to think about James 1, 26 and 27 and the implications for our lives. If we really believe, for example, that caring for widows and orphans was really where the rubber meets the road about Christianity, this is what Christians do. We care for people who are on the fringes. We take care of and watch for people who are on the outside and who are struggling. If we really believe in the greatness of servanthood, think about this. What would change in our lives if we thought that what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45, that greatness is in serving, if we thought that was true, what would change? Here's the truth to apply. We would change, number one, our definition of what a hero is. Who are your heroes? Who do you look up to? Who do people esteem highly? Who do we think well of? Oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, it's the people who accomplish a great deal, the people who are climbers and achievers and those who are really outstanding in their field, those who are excellent in the work they do. And there's nothing wrong with admiring those people. And there's nothing wrong with with honoring accomplishments in and of itself. But the Bible teaches in James 1.27 that those who are living pure and undefiled religion are those who are concerned with the widows and the orphans. Or said another way, in our day, those who are long-term caregivers for relatives, for loved ones who cannot care for themselves. Those ought to be our heroes, don't you think? Those kind of people are the people that are living the kind of life that God desires of all of us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 39, we've talked a lot in recent weeks about Dorcas or Tabitha. She's got two names, but this is a widow who died. And the Bible says that when she died, all the widows of the church, they came and they were showing the tunics that Dorcas had made for them while she was alive. What's Dorcas doing? 
What's she doing with her life? She's just making tunics. She's just helping the other widows. And yet when she dies, people feel, their lo- feel her loss acutely because she's living pure and undefiled religion. I believe people like that ought to be our heroes. I believe we ought to esteem them highly. Not only that, if we really believed in the greatness of servanthood, we would have a very different view of what strong means. Turn your Bibles for just a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've talked a lot over the years about Paul and his thorn in the flesh. But in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 through 10, just listen to what Paul does. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure, he says, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted beyond measure. So, why does Paul have the thorn in the flesh? Because Paul is in danger of pride. And so, God allows this thorn in his life because he's in danger of thinking too much of himself. And in verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now watch verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches in needs in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the point. When we humbly and submissively serve where we're standing, we're pleasing to God. I had a friend years ago that used to tell me, John, you need to lift where you stand. Lift where you stand. There are a lot of needs, a lot of things to care about in the world, but you need to lift where you stand. You need, to, you need to see the people and the needs that are very close to you because you know what? From a physics standpoint, you can lift a lot more right here than you can down at the end of the aisle. From a physics standpoint, I can lift a lot more weight right here. And what Paul's saying is, You know, I I felt like I could do so much more if this thorn was taken away. I'd, I'd have more strength. I'd have more capacity for going and doing marvelous things in God's service. And God is basically saying to Paul, Paul, you lift where you stand. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. The fact that you've got this malady, the fact that you've got this problem, it means that I've got a work for you to do. Lift where you stand. If we really believed in James 1, 26 and 27, That's God's pattern for our lives. That's what he desires of us. We'd have a different view of what strong means. Strong is not about accomplishing everything and meeting everybody's needs. Strong is about lifting where you stand because God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. You're not the Savior, neither am I. And because that's true, we can be strong in him. A third truth to apply as we think about this, if we really believed in the power of the greatness of servanthood, we would have a very different view of what success is. What does success mean? Even in evangelism, I know we're talking a lot about evangelism with our new program. And by the way, are you praying for the people on your list? We're still doing that, it's still July. Next week, Lord willing, I'll give you a new challenge for August, but keep praying for the people on your list. And by the way, have you had any conversations with people that maybe you didn't have a conversation with before or you're, you're thinking about them because you've been praying for them? Those kinds of things happen when we start to pray that way. What does it mean to be successful in God's sight? What does it mean to have success? Sometimes in evangelism, we think that success means that somebody is baptized. 
I mean, that's what we're looking for. That's what we want. We want somebody to get into the water and to submit to Jesus Christ and to say, I believe that he's God's son and I want to be forgiven of my sins. And we believe that baptisms are what define success. But really, evangelistically, that's not true. Evangelistically, success means that we have faithfully sowed the seed. Think about it. We are seed planters. We're seed sowers. That's our job. That's our task. A sower went out to sow and some of the seed fell on good ground, but not all of it did. Mark chapter four. We'd have a different view of success. We'd have a different view of what's really important in life. If we thought about the greatness of servanthood, caring for widows and orphans in their distress, taking care of people who cannot take care of themselves. If that was really what we were all about, it would make us like Jesus. And in Romans 8, verse 29, the Bible says that's exactly what God is trying to accomplish in us. Success means that we go out into the world and our character and our mind and our actions are transformed into the likeness of the Son of God. So that people see him in us and they don't see as much of us. None of self and all of thee, as we just sang a moment ago. If we really believed in the greatness of servanthood, that would be how we'd define success. And then third, as you think about James 1, 26 and 27, this very practical, challenging couple of verses, there is a family concern, actually three of them, family concern. I'm talking about the church now. Because in James 1, 26 and 27, the Bible indicates that we ought to be caring for, visiting, taking care of the needs of, widows and orphans. We ought to make sure in the first place that we do not neglect people. As a congregation, this is something we ought to think about and pray about. This is something that elders and deacons need to be given time and attention to. Is there neglect happening among those who are in difficult situations? In Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, you know what the first problem in the early church was? First problem they ever faced internally, the fact that some of the widows were being neglected. The church had a role. They had a list of widows that they were helping on a daily basis. And the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected, and the the Hebrew-speaking widows were being taken care of. And there was a contention that arose, and people were were, were complaining, and there was an injustice happening. This this was a problem in the early church. And so in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, the apostles wisely said to the church, look out and find seven men among you that we may appoint over this business. And when they took those men and they appointed them over the work, those seven men, their job, their task was to take care of widows. Because James 1, 27 says that that's pure and undefiled religion. Their task, their job, their responsibility was to make sure that widows were not being neglected by the church. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16, there's a lengthy passage that talks about some specifics regarding how the church can and and how a church should not take care of those who, who are widows, widows indeed in that particular passage. But you know what happened? When the early church got serious about taking care of and meeting needs of widows specifically, when the church fixed that problem, the church multiplied and grew. And you think from a church growth standpoint, why does taking care of widows' needs, why does that help the church grow? It's God's plan, not ours. This is what God says we are all about. This is what pure and undefiled religion is all about. It's not going and climbing a mountain and doing some great thing. 
it's taking care of people's needs, keeping yourself holy and bridling your tongue. A danger, danger of neglect. There's also this danger. When it comes to widows and orphans and others, there is a danger as a family, as a church family, that we could be insensitive. That we may not always esteem others better than ourselves, as we read about in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. That we may not think appropriately about some of the programs and activities that we plan, and all of them are good. All of them have a good purpose and a good intention behind them, but the danger is not just neglect, but insensitivity. The way that we come across, the way that we approach issues, and the way that we include or don't include sometimes other people. Matthew seven twelve challenges us, whatever you would have men to do unto you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And the golden rule is not just a good rule for individuals, it's a good rule for the church to follow as well. So this lesson, by the way, is the first of a two-part series, and we're talking about widows and orphans and having pure and undefiled religion tonight. Next week, Lord willing, on Sunday night, we're going to talk about being single and what the Bible has to say about that. And is being single a curse? And is that really against God's will somehow? Does being married mean that my life is better off? Those questions need to be answered. But you know what? A lot of times the New Testament church makes plans for couples and we make plans for the youth. And those are good things, but there's a concern. We can be insensitive to those who are single, to those who are widowed. We can be insensitive if we're not careful. Family concern number three, we can become disconnected from one another. I use the word stratification, stratified, where we've got different layers, you know, kind of like in geology, you've got different layers of rock and stone or whatever. Sometimes the church becomes that way and we start looking like a layer cake if we're not, if we're not careful where we've got our, you know, 39ers group that's a wonderful group, and then we've got our 40-somethings, and then we've got, because at KD, 39ers means that you're older than 39. Um, and, and then we've got your youth group, and you've got your young adults, all those kinds of things. You've got your young kids, and we stratify into layers, which is, again, there's, there's a reason for that. But when you read Ephesians 4.16 and what it says about the way the church functions, Ephesians 4.16 says that the body grows when all the joints and ligaments supply their part to the growth of the body. So every joint, every muscle, every tissue has something to supply to the body and therefore the entire body is built up and edified. In 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 26, Paul makes a long argument about how one part of the body can't say to the other part of the body, I have no need of you. And can't say that to the eye. Can't say that to your foot. I have no need of you. We need every part of the body. And James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And there's a danger that we can become disconnected from those who really need us. The challenge from God's word is this. Serving Jesus Christ and being faithful to God is about these things. It's about controlling our speech. It's about living a holy life. It's about serving other people to the glory of God. And if we can do these things, we're doing what James calls pure and undefiled religion. We need as the people of God to go back to the basics sometimes and to think about God's will 
in our individual lives and as a congregation. How does God's will relate to us? I trust these things will be things that you'll think about in the weeks to come and that we'll put these things into practice in all of our lives. Appreciate you listening to the lesson this evening. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a New Testament Christian, you wanna obey the gospel. You can become a child of God through faith in Christ, repentance of your sin, confession of his name, and through baptism. When we're baptized, we come into contact with the saving blood of Jesus Christ, not before. If you're ready to make that decision tonight, why don't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.